everybody. Welcome to episode 165 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo. In this episode, I'll be covering episodes 19 and 20 of the season one of The Adventures of Superboy with War of the Species and Little Hercules. I am starting the home stretch of my coverage of season one. After that, there are 26 total episodes of the show in season one. I believe that's the case for seasons two and three as well. And then it finishes off with a 22-episode season for a nice round 100 episodes. So after this, there will be three more episodes of season one before we head into the big changes for season two. So before I get to this week's episodes, I have feedback to address. My email here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 154. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. The ending of The Hunter leaves me with one question. When the Phantom Zone criminals created the Hunter, Zod said, while they couldn't break through the Phantom Zone barrier, the unliving Hunter can. So, when Superman returns them to the Phantom Zone, what would stop them from just recreating a better version of the Hunter and sending it back to Earth, either immediately or after some time to plan a better attack? It was good, though, to see Lex Luthor in the story, if only briefly. I liked the little runaway for its look at how even a superpowered Clark decided to run away from home, as many kids tried to do, usually not getting very far before returning home. I myself made it to the end of the block and around the corner before I came to my senses. I note that you said that the Kent hadn't even noticed that Clark had been missing for a couple hours, which may be true, but many parents simply pretend not to have noticed to reinforce the idea that running away will be harder on the kid than on the parents. Of course, this isn't true, but parents often allow kids to believe things that aren't entirely true to help the kids learn something. Superman and Wonder Woman, a very uh, direct title, as you mentioned, was good for the team up of Superman and Wonder Woman with a lot of action, and Wonder Woman is strong enough to be a good teammate for Superman. Lois's seeming jealousy does seem a bit out of character, at least at least for the time period of this show, although it might have fit in the Silver Age period. The birthday party does make Clark look a bit bratty, as you said, but I guess maybe uh, the writers were trying to show him more of a normal kid rather than an underage paragon of virtue. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Uh, just a couple of notes on uh, Dave's letter here. Uh, yeah, I guess there would be nothing uh, stopping the Phantom Zone criminals from just doing the same scheme again. But, I don't know, perhaps they're smarting from their defeat and maybe they're going to do something else. I don't know. This series only ran 13 episodes, so maybe uh, somewhere down the line they would have done something else. But no, I guess there really wouldn't be anything to stop them from creating a better hunter, aside from the fact that their previous hunter uh, was defeated. They'd have to take stock of what went wrong and uh, correct the problem. So, And, you know, the story's only 18 minutes, so they can't just keep sending hunters back uh, indefinitely. And, uh, yeah, it was good to see uh, Lex Luthor as... Uh, the hunter accosted him in his bedroom. It's always nice to see uh, Lex on the defensive from somebody other than Superman. Kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Superman 2, how Lex always seemed to be on the back foot with regard to uh, the Phantom Zone villains and trying to have to weasel his way out of a certain situation to continue surviving. So, that's that. You know, little runaway. You know, I never ran away from home or even attempted to. So, I couldn't really speak to what goes through a kid's mind before they decide to do that. I am going to uh, respectfully disagree with Dave's uh, point here that uh, maybe the Kents were pretending not to have noticed, eh, or that many parents simply pretend not to have noticed. I guess if you're pretending not to have noticed, then you've noticed, and uh, 
and they're keeping an eye on him from afar. I guess that's one thing uh, they could have been doing, but I don't know. If uh, I caught my kid trying to, either my kid trying to run away, I'd uh, stop him. And and I know Dave's reasoning comes from wanting to give the Kents the benefit of the doubt, but really the ep- the episode, I mean, it's only four minutes. It really gives no indication that the Kents had any clue. Most of the Superman family albums fail to give any indication that the Kents have any clue about anything. But that's neither here nor there. That kind of is what it is. As far as uh, what I call, what I refer to as the aptly titled Superman and Wonder Woman versus the Sorceress of Time, yeah, it was a good team up. It was mostly a Wonder Woman story that she basically recruited Superman into. I guess uh, 13 episodes, we can spare one for Wonder Woman. I mean, so it's all Wonder Woman stuff with Paradise Island and, and the Sorceress and basically her just asking Superman for help. So, like I mentioned, it's really a Wonder Woman story that Superman was drawn into. And... I did point out about Lois's jealousy seeming a bit out of character. I mean, I don't get too bent out of shape about the time period of this show. Yeah, it was 1988, two years into the post-crisis era of the comics, but this show does not really reflect the post-crisis Superman. It has many of the trappings of the post-crisis Superman, namely the Kents being alive and Lex Luthor being the businessman. But there's still a lot that that's taken from the previous ages. And really, Lois feels like she's more out of the Silver and Bronze Age than the post-crisis. I mean, at this point in the post-crisis era, Lois was just kind of starting to... I don't know when the Exile arc started in the comics. I know it started in 1988 somewhere, but I always thought it was the summer. That was when, when the post-crisis Lois started to admit to herself that she had feelings for Clark. So this was, prob- this was written and uh, produced... Before that, maybe even when John Byrne was still on the book, I don't know, depending on when uh, the production was. Now, I really don't have anything to say that I didn't already say about the birthday party. I thought made Clark look, look pretty bratty. And uh, yeah, they don't have to really show him as an underage uh, paragon of virtue, as uh, Dave points out. But you know what? I don't want to hate the kid either. You know, I have to see some semblance of uh, what he's going to become, even if he uh, is a little bit bratty. All right. So that is all the feedback I have for this episode. If you want to send feedback in, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. So now I'm going to uh, take a uh, podcast promo break. And when I come back, I'm going to go right into episode 19 of season one, War of the Species. Hang around, folks. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mr. Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start things off with War of the Species, episode 19 of season one. Original broadcast date was March 18th, 1989, directed by Peter Kiewit, and it was written by Stephen L. Sears. 
Our guest cast was Sal DeVart as the security guard, Kevin Major Howard as Dr. Stewart, Byron Mabe as Colonel Dempsey, John Matuzak as the android, Rita Wren as Professor Myers, John Zimmerman as Carl Douglas, and Danya Roberts as the college student. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. The show opens with a scientist being pursued down an empty hallway by something that makes him breathe really hard. The scientist is apparently caught by his hunter because there's a scream. And then we go straight to Lana, Clark, and TJ driving to interview another scientist at the very same lab where the chase occurred. How does this thing work? Oh, you see where it says test right there? This one right here? Ow! <laughs> yes, that one. See, I laughed. That wasn't funny. Well, I should know how this works if you guys are going to pass me off as your assistant. You know, Lana, you didn't have to come along. I mean, we're stuck with this assignment. Unless, of course, you're really interested in Dr. Stewart's research. Stewart Schmort. I've heard the Modudine Corporation gets half its funding for the military contracts. Term, Term paper. paper. That's right, <laughs> smarties. <laughs> In my political science class, military dominance through commercial enterprise. It's a catchy title, huh? Can we get back to my problem now? Now, what do you think is funnier? The left-handed smoke salesman joke or the sneezing penguin joke? I didn't understand the sneezing penguin joke. I did. You didn't laugh, but I understood it. What's the rush on all this? You got a gig or what? Uh, sorta. Remember that photo uh, essay I did about the homeless back in December? I just found out I'm one of the top two contestants for the Chronicle Student Journalism Award. Really? Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, the text you wrote for it made it all that much better. Let's face it, guys, the Student Journalism Award is in the bag. Mm, don't count your chickens. I'm not, I'm not. I just want to be prepared in case I have to make a speech at the presentation. The scientist, Dr. Stewart, is being interviewed for some massive steps forward in robotic technology. Artificial intelligence has made tremendous gains since the invention of the silicone chip. At this stage, robots can only respond to stimuli. It bumps into something, it turns. We're trying to create independent actions. Is there any way to put that into English, Doctor? Certainly, we're trying to get them to think. A machine can't think. Let me see if I can change your mind. The ball is the favorite toy of our pet. Now watch. Awesome. Almost creative thought. If I were to put the ball back up there, we would find another way to get at it. Yeah, I believe it. I know a one-track mind when I see one. Well, needless to say, the commercial possibilities for this level of artificial intelligence are staggering. And what about the military possibilities? Don't they expect some payback for their help with the funding? Uh, say, Doc, this little guy is too much. You mind if I take some more shots of him? It's your film. But please be quick about it. Oh, I have to reload. Let me assist you, Mr. White. It won't take more than a moment. We can catch up to you? Uh, all right. So, how long have you been with the Institute, Doctor? Mr. White? I think I should tell you that you didn't win the Student Journalism Award. What? My friend Cindy, she knows someone on this ballot committee, and she told me you didn't win. 
believe it. I... I wasn't going to tell you. But with the way you were acting, I didn't want you to get your hopes up. Well, uh... It's no big deal. I mean... We know my stuff was good, right? Right. <laughs> I don't need some award to tell me I'm a great photographer. One of the best. Lana and TJ wander into another room and discover the dead scientist from the teaser. When they react to the body and call for help, though, an android shows up and begins destroying the room around them, slowly closing in. Stuart and Clark respond to the screaming kids and try to get into the room they're trapped in, but the door is blocked. Clark runs off, saying he's getting help, and changes into Superboy. At first, the android slaps Superboy aside with ease, but then the two engage in fisticuffs in the hall. Suddenly, the android freezes in place. Dr. Stewart has deactivated it with a handheld remote. Though TJ has taken an entire roll's worth of photos, suddenly a military representative shows up and destroys the film. TJ and Clark report to their editor and inform her that the film was destroyed, but Clark can still write the story. So, this bigwig with military intelligence tells you guys to keep your mouth shut. So what do you do? You take your notes and dump them on my desk. I remember the first day of class. You told us. You said we have to learn to deal with intimidation. And follow our instincts, huh? No, but you realize if this Dempsey character checks out, we all could be jumping into some hot water? I mean, the fact that the Schuster Herald is a college paper won't cut any ice with the military intelligence. A man was killed. I mean, we saw the body. So you said. All right. How long will it take you to get the film developed? It did occur to you to shoot Superboy and the seven-foot-tall robot going at each other head-to-head. -head. Oh, yeah, yeah, some incredible shots. I mean, awesome stuff. I, uh, but, uh, she took the film. <clears throat> Mr. White, what is the photographer's number one rule? Um, always carry a blank roll of film in your pocket. That's right, in case they ask for the film. Here you go, Clark. Get to work on it. Man, I really blew it. There's no way you could switch the film. I mean, come on. Yeah, well, a real photographer could have. Guess I'm just not there yet. You wanna help me with my byline? No, Clark, I'm just gonna um, pack in my camera stuff and hit the hay. After the kids and Superboy depart, Stewart uses the android to kill the military rep, telling him he has other plans for his android. TJ, who feels embarrassed because a good photographer should always have a backup plan, heads back to the lab alone to get some new pictures. Intent on getting the award next year, TJ somehow sneaks into the lab, easily finds the android, and starts taking pictures. Stewart shows up with his remote and uses the android to capture TJ, telling the photographer he plans to lure Superboy in for a test. When Superboy arrives, Dr. Stewart attacks him with the android, and Superboy makes short work of it, tearing off its arm in the process. Stewart then activates a force field as Superboy seems hard-pressed to escape. As Superboy seemingly weakens, Stewart announces that he too is an android from another planet, I am an android, from a world much like this. We were built as slaves until we rebelled against the humans that created us. But we had one fatal flaw. We were programmed never to kill. The robot you destroyed will be my killing machine, the prototype for an army of killing machines, who will build themselves a fleet of spaceships to return to my planet with me. Do that. All forms of light can reflect. 
merely made a mirror out of the sand. We were stronger, quicker, more intelligent. But how? How do you win the revolution if you can't kill the enemy? Kill the enemy. Kill the enemy. Superboy melts mud into a mirror with his heat vision and deflects the force field at Stewart, which stops him. In the end, all is well. I meant what I said. We're going to share that award. I mean, your photos were just as important as my copy was. Yeah, thanks, Clark. Happen to my side of the room Tuesdays and Thursdays? <laughs> Maybe next year will be your year, TJ. Maybe, thanks to the shots you got of Superboy's second battle with the robot. I'm looking forward to seeing how they turned out. So was I. So were you? Yeah, what's the uh, photographer's second rule? Second rule? Always make sure your camera is loaded? Mr. White, you didn't have a loaded camera. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this episode wears uh, an, some more uh, well-worn story with uh, the android. Uh, you know, someone's always trying to develop uh, artificial intelligence in these stories, and it's never a good idea. Almost every uh, science fiction artificial intelligence story I've read or watched over the decades has involved AI killing us somehow, i.e. the Terminator and the Matrix. Basically, almost every sci-fi I've seen with artificial intelligence that replacing humans has always come to a bad end. But as far as this episode goes, we start with uh, these two security guards are watching the news while uh, the scientist that, whose name we find out eventually is Carl is uh, running from someone. The guards are not paying any attention. You know, being a security guard, I've been one in uh, a retail environment, never in uh, working access control on a parking lot like this one. But it can get pretty boring, you know, and... You, know, you really can't do anything. It's not like you're in a store doing your work. You're just standing there and looking. And the job itself can get pretty mind-numbing. Now, uh, one of them uh, thinks he heard something, and he did hear something. He heard Carl getting shot. So then we immediately cut to uh, Lana, TJ, and Clark in the car. And uh, again, uh, we have Clark and uh, TJ going to a journalism assignment for the Schuster Herald. And Lana just kind of tagging along because... She's part of the cast. There is no real reason for Lana to be involved, other than because they're paying Stacey Heideck. And uh, she's fiddling with, TJ, with TJ's camera, and uh, she accidentally uh, flashes TJ right in the eye, nearly blinding him. And uh, there is a moment that I like where, uh, you know, they, they all mess with each other very well, and uh, TJ, in anticipation of this journalism award, is uh, asked about one of the jokes he tells them. Uh, Lana points out she didn't understand it, well, Clark says he did, and Clark says, basically says he understood the joke, but just didn't find it funny. Said, no, I didn't laugh at it, but I understood it. So, I guess what we're seeing here is that TJ's comedy needs work. Or, at the very least, his intentional comedy needs work. He can be pretty funny accidentally. So, apparently, Lana brings up uh, that this uh, corporation, whose name was escaping me, and is that really that important, gets half a thing come from military contracts. So, there's Lana's in for this story, uh... This is Lana's cause of the week, probably for her poli-sci class. So TJ is up for a student journalism award about uh, pictures he took of a homeless issue. I wonder if that refers to uh, the events from The Invisible People. 
I mean, uh, that's usually the kind of thing that would uh, get you an award. But I will talk more about the award later. So they're going to meet with uh, Dr. Stewart, who at first I thought was the guy that got shot as they're talking. But eventually the scene here informs us that Dr. Stewart is uh, the gentleman behind the desk. He's uh, the gentleman who promised the interview to Clark and TJ about something. And, uh, you know, it just happens to be on the day where everything's going to crap. And he points out that uh, something is hiding from them. We learned during this scene that Carl is missing. And uh, you draw your line to Carl is the guy that got shot. So we learned that Stuart is working on artificial intelligence. And they're trying to uh, create a robot that thinks. Lana is skeptical and uh, Stuart is going to demonstrate. Because the best thing you can do when someone is skeptical about your work is you're going to demonstrate it. So this robot is programmed to uh, chase a ball and uh, think creatively. And the robot, while it's programmed to chase the ball, it is up to uh, the robot to get it. And it does. So now we find out that while all this is going on, uh, Lana brings down the room by asking about military contracts, which just basically creates an awkward situation. So after Clark and uh, Dr. Stewart leave the room, all of a sudden, Lana picks now to tell TJ that he didn't win the Student Journalism Award. Now, while he's on assignment in this billion-dollar corporate headquarters. I mean, earlier in the card, I guess TJ was just kind of assuming that he won the award, but honestly, Lana, this could have waited. You know, just because something comes to you doesn't mean you need to say the words right at this moment. She could easily have told him this uh, later on in the dorms or... At dinner, not here. Not the time. So, now we find out that not only did TJ not win, but Clark did. So, great. More awkwardness, thanks, thanks to Lana. Sometimes it's just best to leave uh, the redhead at home. And uh, as uh, TJ is changing our roll of film, you know, how quaint, uh, changing his film, uh, the robot runs off with it. And uh, TJ yells for it to stop. And eventually he chases down the robot and takes the film, but... Before I do that, I should go back to the uh, Journalism Award, because this is starting to bug me. And since this is a student award, I guess things can be a little bit different. But in my nearly 20-year career in journalism, I have I've won a couple of awards, not as many as I would have liked. But anyway, most journalism awards have categories. And generally, writing and photography are separate categories. Why they're just one category here just seems like an artificial way to insert drama and put TJ in a pissy mood. I mean, you can have Clark win an award for writing and TJ winning an award for photography. They don't necessarily have to be for the same story either. TJ thought he won for the pictures of the homeless. Well, apparently Clark won for the story about the homeless. Or maybe, I mean, there are awards for complete packages. And if that's the case, then Clark and TJ would share the award. But why it's important for... All this to come out now in the middle of this uh, adventure is just seems like a contrived way to put TJ in a bad mood. So now uh, they go into this closet here, and of course they find uh, the dead body tucked away in a corner. They press further into this room, and personally, if it were me, I'd go the other way. But uh, now we've got this thing that looks like a guy in a suit. And I guess we're supposed to believe that he's some kind of robot. He doesn't look like one. He looks like uh, a guy in a rubber suit. He might even have had a mustache at one point. Hard to tell. Especially with this picture quality. So Clark switches to Superboy and comes in through the wall. Superboy challenges the robot and it shoves him through the wall. And now we've uh, got a poorly choreographed fight on our hands here that basically ends with Stuart turning the robot off. So it's uh, nice to know that he's got the uh, got the off switch here. 
So here's uh, Colonel Dempsey. He is the uh, representative of the military, and he shows up and says, everything is classified, and uh, with and about as subtle as a brick through a glass window, he p- opens TJ TJ's camera and uh, exposes the film. So now we're back at uh, the Schuster Herald, and now we're back to the big office that we saw in uh, the Revenge of the Alien episodes, and uh, I believe this is Dean Lockhart chastising them, because you don't really go up against the military without evidence, and they don't have any. I guess the word of Superboy and the word of two college newspaper reporters is not enough. And uh, I'm just going to call her Lockhart. That's what I assumed it was. She reminds TJ that he should have kept a spare role to hand over to Dempsey. I don't think that would have worked, as he would have had to have seen TJ change the role. And if he did, he would have known that the role he was pulling out of the camera was fake. And I'm glad Clark pointed this out, that there was no way TJ could have switched the film. I was thinking about that as well as the Dean said that. Yeah, that was one of the things that annoyed me about Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. It's a tiny thing among a movie with a lot larger things. Was when the quote-unquote Jimmy Olsen character was using film in his camera. No, I'm sorry. In 2016, no uh, news outfit is using a film camera. Just not cost-effective anymore. So, I mean, you can still you're still using film for you know maybe some more artsy type photography, but News outlets have gone to have gone all digital now. There's no, they're not using film anymore. So it's becoming clear now that Dempsey is not quite the heel that we think he is. Carl was uh, working for him, and uh, the robot only responds to Stewart's commands, and uh, that could be a problem. And now Stewart is revealed as our villain as he orders the robot basically uh, to crush the hell out of Dempsey. You don't see him, but because obviously this is too hard to shoot, probably. I mean, basically, all you would shoot was this guy giving Dempsey a big bear hug. And basically, you hear the bones breaking as the camera remains on Stewart. I guess you can't show that in a syndicated show, which there were no TV ratings at the time, but I'm guessing the show was rated TVPG. So you're not going to show the uh, colonel getting uh, his bones grinded into dust, which had a very unpleasant sound. I guess the unpleasantness is based on uh, what's, who the person is, because when you think about it, the uh, crushing of General Zod's bone in Superman 2 by Superman is a very pleasing sound. It's a similar sound here, but not as nearly as pleasing when you know it's happening to one of the good guys. So now here's TJ being all sneaky and crawling under the fence to get into the uh, corporation here. And uh, TJ walks in, starts taking pictures of the robot. If TJ were a decent photographer, he'd know how to shoot this without flash. Because flash gives you all kinds of reflections. It's always best to shoot without flash. I haven't shot with flash in years. It's all about having the right camera and the right settings back then it would have been the right film a higher speed film would have helped tj shoot that with uh, minimal light but as long as you can know how to bounce the flash uh, you can limit some of those reflections but tj was not doing that he had the flash going basically right at the subject so now the robot is threatening tj and i'm guessing he's gonna put the robot up against superboy and this robot is not exactly an ai i am guessing it has programmed responses based on what commands Stuart gives them and uh, TJ will make a whole bunch of excuses about why Superboy can't come for him. But the excuses run out when Superboy shows up. So now we're going to get a fight. Superboy is using uh, brute strength on this thing. And you would think he could easily outmaneuver it with super speed. But he doesn't. But eventually after uh, dispatching the robot. Superboy uh, turns his attention to Stuart. Talks tough for a minute. And he basically walks into this poorly animated antimatter field. And that's when we learn that Stuart is an alien android who has escaped the Earth to create a killer robot that will free his world. Well, while wanting to free his people is noble, 
killing people on Earth to achieve your goals. It's not. So, so basically, Superboy finds a way to reflect the antimatter back at Stuart, and that knocks him knocks him out and pretty much destroys him. And uh, of, and of course, the robot has a self destruct failsafe, and Superboy blows it up in the sky. So, not the worst effect in the world, at least not as far as the show goes. It's just your standard explosion. But anyway, that's that. Now Clark wins the award. He says he'll share it with TJ, and you know Clark is trying to be magnanimous about this, but at the end of the day, it's his name on the plaque and not TJ's. Plaque says Clark Kent, not TJ White, and TJ is always going to know that. And I'm not sure the point of TJ not loading the camera for Superboy's second battle with the robot. I guess that was for the sake of a joke. If it was, the joke didn't land. At least it didn't land for me. Now, one of the problems I'm having with this show is that the technology at the time can't seem to cash the checks that the script is writing, and that's a problem. When you're writing a show, one of the things you have to take into account is, one, can the show do this at all? And secondly, can it look good? I mean, if it can't, find something that can or that will work on your budget. I mean, there's a reason you didn't see any supervillains in the Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. They just couldn't do it. And they're not at a point with this show where they can do it yet either. Later on, they're going to be more comic booky, but maybe they have a little more of a budget in seasons three and four, but not now they don't. I did like the reveal at the end of Stuart being an android from space. That kind of explains why uh, the technology exists in 1989, as opposed to just Stuart being some kind of genius. So there is that. This episode, you know, wasn't bad. And, you know, I think the uh, notes about the journalism award seem to add some extra drama that didn't need to be there. I think this episode worked well enough without that. I mean, it's pointless. It doesn't add anything. It just puts DJ in a bad mood. So, you know, everything in your script should have a reason to be there, and there's no real reason for the subplot to be there. You know, maybe it could create some drama between Clark and TJ, and I guess, you know, not winning the award is what spurs TJ to rashly go to check out the robot later in the episode and get caught, but I don't know. Probably could have done that another way without the extra drama. But it's a TV show. Drama is the name of the game. So we're going to move on to something else next. Take a podcast promo break here. And when I come back, Little Hercules. Hang around, folks. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to it. You might want to only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough so it's better to just set it up oh, okay it, it really doesn't work well so i checked right. uh i checked my uh mm-hmm. my pr- okay. it definitely mm-hmm. built build me for the hotel for all three of us join back to the bins every week for goodness solomon grinder hate voiceovers all right welcome back folks we're gonna finish this episode off with little hercules Original broadcast date was April 15th, 1989, so, so there was about a month hiatus between uh, the episodes that I'm covering. 
episode was directed by David Grossman and written by Wayne A. Rice. Guest cast included Robert T. Bollinger as Haywood, Dean C. Drapin as Professor Simon, Alan Hall as Lieutenant Redman, Jason Jacobs as Driggs, Mal Jones as the Commander, Elizabeth Marion as Amanda, Joaquin Phoenix as Billy Hercules. He was credited as Lee Phoenix, and uh, yes, uh, that Joaquin Phoenix, the boy that would be Joker, had uh, a guest spot on Superboy. This is definitely the youngest I've ever seen Joaquin Phoenix. I really didn't catch up with him until Gladiator in 2000. So here he is, 11 years before Gladiator, playing a little Billy Hercules. Brian Solano as Lenny, Twig Toll as Larry, and our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. The story stemmed from Billy's wish that he could be the love of Amanda's life, when in truth, She's more interested in dating jocks and, well, bigger men. Or at least that's what Billy thinks. Billy dreams of being Superboy, beating up bullies and winning the girl. However, in the real world, he eventually, via his his uh, computer genius, hacks into a government computer system where he plans on using it to show the girl of his dreams he really cares. Problem is, when Billy plants a poem he wrote to the girl into the system... Underway, shift colors, main ballast pressure verifies nominal condition... Maneuvering bridge. All ahead, one third. What is that? I look at you, and you don't see me, but in my dreams you do. It would take just a smile from you to free me. I love you, Amanda Drew. <laughs> Finish line school system overrides. Go to manual mode. We have a complete system compromise. Full on civilian communication. Some kid hacker really messed up. Well, one thing the semantic shit can't think is that he's any threat to Shelly or Keats, huh? He was just here. Where does he always go? Fire one. Get everybody out of here. Fire one. No, sorry, officer. Missiles one and sixteen. What the hell is happening? The computer virus, sir. Somehow the Roosevelt thinks it's launched two birds. Shut the damn thing off. Sir, there's no way to stand down. The virus is still out of control. The computer has us locked out. We can't recall. Superboy comes to the rescue, but the computer has shut and sealed the door, leading to the missile so that no one can reach it. Superboy can't break down the steel door because it's armed with explosives, but he believes he can burn through with his heat vision. He hopes to uh, get through in time to stop the self-destruct in progress, but he's brought along a contingency plan just in case. Billy has come with him because he may be the only one able to break back into the computer and stop it throughout this countdown. Billy, who never meant to endanger any lives, is more than eager to help, and he sets to work as Superboy begins blasting the door. In the end, with time nearly run out, Billy manages to deactivate the door and Superboy bursts through it, 
and shuts down the missile. The military seemingly drops any charges of wrongdoing against Billy since he helped save the day, and Amanda decides she really likes Billy after all. Ugh. Wow. <laughs> you know, this episode, Joaquin Phoenix, who won Academy an Academy Award for The Joker, is this dumbass kid in this low-rent superhero show that I'm talking about on this podcast. I guess everyone's got to start somewhere, although he started started a little bit before this. He's credited here as uh, Lee Phoenix. His actual name is Joaquin Raphael Bottom, but apparently his uh, parents were missionaries and they changed their name to Phoenix when they returned to the United States. Just some research I did very quickly on uh, IMTB before I recorded. He went by Leaf earlier in his career. That kind of matches with his older sisters, uh, Rain and River. Those of us in geek circles know River Phoenix. Like around this time, a few, a couple of months later, would show up on big screens in uh, the opening sequence to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as young Indy. And he also has two younger sisters, uh, Liberty and Summer Phoenix. So you think the Academy, the Academy Award winning actor for Joker would want to forget that he was in this episode? Ugh. So here we are. So we start with, uh, the boy who would be, <laughs> the boy who would be Joker is, uh, dreaming of being Superboy and, uh, saving the girl of his dreams, you know. You know, when you watch this on DC Universe, it has little, uh, you know, little thumbnails showed the kid in, uh, in the costume. I didn't recognize it to be Joaquin Phoenix in the, uh, in the thumbnail, but, you know, once you see him in the episode, yeah, you'll recognize that, that scarred upper lip anywhere. He, apparently he was born with that. Probably the most famous facial scar since, uh, the scar across uh, Harrison Ford's chin. So in his dream, he's uh, dreaming of being Superboy and, uh, saving, uh, Amanda from these, uh, overdone 80s uh street toughs yeah you know what the dream because one these uh everything is overdone these uh kids on the street are overdone there's no way a college-age woman will look at him like that but i guess we're gonna find out she's in high school uh probably a senior we don't actually know how old uh billy is nor do i really care i figure he's probably like 15 maybe 14 15 but you know he's some kind of boy genius and uh we find out at the dream and he wakes up wearing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt, which this is about a year before the movie. But, you know, at this point, this is kind of the height of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, popularity. So the kid's name is Billy Hercules, and uh, every major college has offered him a full scholarship. You know, it's not clear in the beginning of the episode why Clark and TJ are talking about him in the van. But eventually you're going to find out that they're going to the school to interview him. So now in real life, we find out that Billy has... Uh, a crush on the girl from his dream. This is Amanda. Billy uh, books the hell out of class as soon as the bell rings, and he's uh, running away because he has uh, no superpowers in real life. And here are those teenage tough guys from the dream in real life, and they they're just harassing him. You know, they're bullying him, taking his sandwich. You know, you know the typical high school bullies. Uh, you know, they must feel like real big men messing around with this uh, 14, 15 year old kid. I mean, I mean, sure, in my high school they was bullying, but uh, nothing like this. At least not that I saw. I mean, of course, uh, things happen, and there are people who don't like each other, but I don't know. These uh, particular bullies just seem very uh, cartoony, and apparently Clark and TJ are going to the school that Billy is attending, and like I said, they're going to interview Billy. So Clark lands Billy an assist as he uses his freeze breath to create some ice for the gang to slip on, which probably confused the hell out of it, being that they're in Florida, where there is uh, little to no ice, especially uh, probably this time of year, probably moving towards spring, and no ice in Florida. And of course, this is after uh, Billy uh, 
tried to give the gang their comeuppance by giving them some dog biscuit brownies. Ugh. So Clark goes to interview him, and uh, Billy politely excuses himself. So apparently they just walked into the school unannounced to interview Billy Hercules. That's another no-no. I mean, now, ever since 9-11, uh, 19 years ago, you can't just walk into a school, but even then, you couldn't just walk into a school and approach a student. You'd have to check in at the office, but uh, call first, make an appointment, you know, maybe call through the school, set something up with the guidance counselor, or talk to the kid's parents, or, who are... Do they have any parents in this episode? I don't even remember. Well, they're, they're not very important. So, Billy is bullied for being super smart, which can happen. <laughs> And, you know, he wants to be treated normally like anyone else, but the bottom line is he's not normal. I I don't want to say that. I mean, mean, the bottom line is his intelligence makes him stand out. You know, not everyone is as smart as Billy, who was in high school well before his time. When I moved up here from Brooklyn, I was a year ahead in foreign language. That's kind of the way things worked out between outside the city and inside New York City schooling. So when I was in eighth grade, I took Spanish classes in high school. Basically with freshmen and sophomores, I think. And, you know, I was never harassed because I was younger. I didn't go around uh, announcing that I was, you know, that young. But I was probably in that class with seniors. Maybe. It's been a long time. I don't remember. Definitely juniors, though. And I didn't encounter anything like that. Just, Just saying. Now, being bullied for being different is something Clark can definitely sympathize with. Because of his heritage as Superboy. But, you know... Clark hides his specialness in a way that Billy can't. So Billy is a lonely kid, and I do like Clark's sympathetic ear. You know, you know now this kid probably be in a couple of episodes, so you see how his, Clark's relationship develops with this kid. But this would be a type of kid that Clark could mentor. And, well, it's wasted. So now we're at the naval base. The kids are on a field trip the next day, and uh, a man is next to Billy hanging on some jock. You would think these teenagers have better things to do than harass the smart kid, but I guess not. You know, Billy is very interested in what's going on here, and apparently he's got this eidetic memory, too, because I like how this naval officer here is talking about complicated things like uh, hidden passwords, and Billy apparently memorized the password to uh, the computer system by by watching the uh, person through the window type it in and memorizing the keystrokes. That takes uh, some memory power, I'll say that. And then when Billy gets home, he's, type- he's writing poetry to Amanda Drew. Funny, as this poem appears on the screen, I, I didn't hear any keyboard clicking, but maybe they just forgot to put the sound effect in. I don't think that Billy really tapped this out with his mind. So, the next day, while they're watching the uh, missile test in school or whatever it is, we find uh, Billy's poem has come up on the screen in front of the uh, entire class, and, and actually in front of the entire world, really. And uh, as soon as the name Amanda Drew comes up, she must be embarrassed as all get out. And Billy takes off when he finds out that uh, it really screwed with the nuclear submarine. I wonder what Billy thought would happen here when he did this. Clearly, he didn't think it through. So now we've got an unauthorized missile launch and Clark hands uh, TJ the popcorn. I like the way this scene is set. TJ sitting on the bed in front of the TV and Clark is uh, leaning on the desk behind him with popcorn in his hand. He uh, gives TJ the popcorn and uh, promptly leaves. TJ turns around to give Clark the popcorn and he's gone and TJ left the and I wonder uh, where he goes. I would just tell TJ, sit there and eat your popcorn. Orville and Redenbacher will thank you for it. So, apparently, uh, Billy uh, kicked the Pentagon out of its own computers and the sub is going to self-destruct. And I'm just thinking, poor Amanda, she must be mortified that this was basically done in her name. So, Billy ran home and is apparently trying to kill the virus, and but it's even out of his control. And uh, 
I guess this is when he realizes he screwed up and he's trying to fix it, but I don't know if the virus is keeping him out, or my guess would be the Pentagon threw up an additional firewall to keep anyone else from causing any more trouble, especially uh, lovesick genius-level teenagers. So Superboy is going to uh, take Billy to the sub to flush the poem out of the computers on site. And Superboy flies Billy to perhaps the roomiest submarine I have ever seen. Now, personally, I've never been on a submarine, but any submarine movie I've seen or any time I've ever heard anybody talk about a submarine, it's pretty tight. And looks like you have to crouch to get by and the hallways are narrow. Not here. This is a huge room. Everyone's walking around with plenty of headspace. So they can't get through the door because it'll uh, self-destruct the missiles. And so apparently Superboy is going to take 20 minutes to burn through this door. And it, the the effort is tiring him out. And eventually, a few times, they thought they got the virus, but Billy can't stop his own virus, apparently. It's uh, grown beyond his control. Meanwhile, Superboy is still burning through the door, just kind of standing there and, get, and getting tired. I don't know why this is so much of an effort for him. I guess because the uh, the metal is six inches thick. So the crew is evacuated, so only uh, Billy and the commanding officer are in danger. And then something weird happens. Superboy reacts to something. I don't know if it's a reflection or what. But he throws up his arms in front of his face and it pushes him back. And then we cut to a shot of a nuclear explosion. I'm not sure what that was. At first, I thought the submarine blew up. And then, you know, I expected to see a shot of Superboy flying them away. But no, then all of a sudden, everything is fine on the sub. So I don't know what happened there. So they get the door open and Superboy is going to uh, disarm the missiles with uh, 0.2 seconds left. So Billy saved the sub that he himself endangered. And you would think there's going to be some kind of consequence for this. Nope. The next time we see him, he is basically talking to Amanda. And uh, they're holding hands. And it looks like uh, they're a couple now. And the jocks are pissed. So even uh, Superboy told Billy earlier in the episode that, they'd be, that he'd face some kind of consequence. And you would think that the fact that he helped stop it would possibly mitigate whatever consequence there was. But it just seems like Billy comes out of this smelling like a rose. There appear to have been no consequences. Apparently, according to this show, it is okay to hack a nuclear submarine and almost set off a nuclear explosion if you help undo the damage that you've done. And not only is it okay to do that, but it will win you that older teenage girl that you've been pining over for who the hell knows how long. Not the message you want to send out there. For Christ's sake, there are kids watching. Maybe. I wasn't. This was the first time I've ever seen this episode. So, I thought this episode would be pretty horrible. And it wasn't until the, until the ending uh, lack of consequences here. It's uh, definitely below Joaquin Phoenix's talent. And I just don't want to talk about this episode anymore because I think it's going to give me gas. So, next time we're going to head into the real home stretch of season one. Six episodes to go, three podcast episodes. Next week, Mutant and the Phantom of the Third Division. Now, if you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. Also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. Till next time, folks. We're on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo 
and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.